Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, one of the things that you will notice if you've been uh, with us for the last couple of weeks as we've just started this book of Genesis is that God didn't just start off creation, just said something, and then just let the natural processes take over. You know, somehow God just said something and he left it, and then evolution took over and natural processes took over, and just over a long period of time, everything came to be. No, what we see is God is very much intimately involved in his creation and how he created the entire universe. In fact, right in verse 2 of Genesis 1, if you remember from two weeks ago, uh, you know, we saw the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit himself, hovering over the waters of the deep. And, and what that showed was that God didn't just say something, but that his presence was right there, and even though he had created the earth first in a rudimentary stage with just its raw materials in verse 2, God was still very much involved. And in fact, what you see then as we progress on with the days of creation is this cycle of, and there was evening and there was morning uh, one day, and, two, uh, and the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day. And what it really shows is, again, the power of God, that only God himself could do this. And I want to pick up from where I just um, stopped last week, which is the, the, the thinking about whether this is a literal day, whether there were six literal days or ages. You know, one of the things that we looked at last week was the fact that it actually is not there was evening and there was morning the first day. It actually should be translated there was evening and there was morning one day. There's a big difference between saying the first day and one day. Uh, let me try and explain it this way. Now, if I were to explain to my children, okay, there's 50 cents, there's 50 cents, I put it together, this is one dollar. So what did I just do? I, I've just defined what one dollar is. So now that God has defined what a day is, what one day is, which is where there's evening and there's morning, which is the whole cycle of the 24-hour period, then from the second day onwards, then he says, okay, you know what one day is? Now there's the second day and the third day and the fourth day and the fifth day. And if you remember, last week I also said, it is the very reason that the people of Israel, they ordered their very work week, that God said, you shall observe the Sabbath day on the seventh day, and you shall work for six days, because that's how I created the world. In fact, I know last week we looked at Exodus 21.11. Look at another um, parallel passage that's in Deuteronomy 31.15-17. to 17. Deuteronomy 31, 15 to 17, where, again, God is instituting the Sabbath day to the people of Israel, where he says, you shall take the seventh day and rest on that seventh day and hold it as holy. Now think about this. What he says in Deuteronomy 31, 15 to 17, is that if you don't, on the seventh day, if you don't observe the Sabbath day on this seventh day and rest, then you shall die. Now, I want you to think about this clearly. And he says, how are the, how are the Israelites going to know what days are? I mean, if it's, if it's just ages, if it's just, just subjective, you know, at one time, some people say it's ages, and for some people, it's not 24 hours, I don't know, maybe one week, uh, which equates to one day or whatever. I mean, imagine that. Oh, the, the Israelites have no idea, and God says, on this seventh day, if you don't observe the Sabbath, you're going to die. 
But what does God say? No, I created the whole universe in six days and I rested on the seventh day. Six literal days and the seventh day. So you follow that exact same pattern. Six working literal days and on the seventh day you rest. You know, in fact, if you move to the New Testament, you will hear even Jesus saying in Matthew 19, verse 4, where he says, In the beginning, God created them male and female. Now, if the beginning, what is in the beginning? That's Genesis 1-1, right? The very beginning of space and time and matter. Now, if... If male and female, if humankind came many ages later, it doesn't make any sense if Jesus is saying, in the beginning, he created them male and female because it happened millions of years later. It wasn't at the beginning. So what we see here is a literal six-day creation and God resting on the seventh day. Now you say, but Benoit, I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? I, I mean, why is it so important that we understand that the earth or, or this entire universe was created in six literal days? And that it wasn't any kind of evolution or anything like that. Here's what's at stake. Do we take God at his word? in what he is saying in his word? Is that what is going to be authoritative? Or what science or something else says, and then we try and somehow subject that into the very word of God? That is what is at stake. And that's why it's important that we understand that God created the entire universe in six literal days. Now, last week, we also saw that in the creation account and so many aspects of it, God's working is similar and there's so many parallels with the way he works even spiritually because it's the same work of God, right from God created, a very unique word. And then when you hear of David saying, create in me a new heart, and when we are called as new creations, it's, it's a work of God. No man can do it, only God can do this. In fact, I, I didn't mention this when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. In fact, even the very fact that you see the Holy Spirit hovering, where he's manipulating and moving the raw materials of the earth, to prepare for the word of God in Genesis 1-3, where he's hovering over, and then it says, then God's word said. There's a parallel there, even spiritually, where we know that's how God even works now, right? The Holy Spirit prepares the heart to receive the word of God. Then the aspects of of separation, how he's separating things, where he creates boundaries and makes things distinct. It's that very same principle then he carries over to the people of Israel when he separates them out and makes them distinct and gives them boundaries and and he says, I want you to be separate from the rest of the world. And then that carries over into the New Testament to the people of God, that's the church, where he says the exact same thing. I I want you to be distinct. I want you to be separate. And God has given us boundaries to live in. And all this is for the good of his creation and ultimately for his own glory. And so now this morning we come to day Two and day three. God is in the process of, if you remember again in verse two, where it says the earth was formless and void. And so, what he does in the first three days of creation, he forms, he creates form and environments. And then in verses four, five, and six, He fills that void with life and other things. And that's what he's beginning to do here. 
God is in the process of forming the formless earth so that it can become habitable for life to thrive, for plants and trees and animals and human life. So after God creates the formless light, formless earth, he creates light. He separates light from darkness, makes them both distinct, giving them their boundaries. We saw last week there's color, there's energy because of the light, and then God has set up this cycle of darkness and light. The first step of creating an environment that is able to make the environment a habitable place for life. That's day one. But remember, the earth is still formless at this stage. It's still an undifferentiated mass of raw materials mixed in a large body of water. One commentator compared it to a room full of mud and gases and water and energetic elements having no breathing space. Now, I don't know exactly what it looked like or whether it would look like that, but, you you know, most likely it would have been a big ball of water with lots of undifferentiated elements and raw materials mixed in it. That's the formless earth. And light has come on, color has come. Now God's going to start working on the waters to create an earth that is livable. In fact, in 2 Peter verse three, uh, chapter 3 and verse 5, also talks about this very fact when, when it says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of what? Out of water. And through water by the word of God. And that's what we see God doing on days two and three of the creation week. God is going to make the earth more habitable and and he begins to separate the the waters and makes this earth a habitable place. So by way of outline, our first point, God's creation on day two, verses six through eight. Let's just look at verse six first. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Again, God said. Remember we saw last week, that's God's word there. And we looked at John 1 last week, that so every time we see in Genesis 1, when it says God said, then the pre-incarnate Christ he goes to work. The, the word of God himself goes to work and creates whatever God the Father has said. And so God says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Now this word expanse, it's, it's an interesting word. In the original, the, the, the word is rakia. And it comes from a root word which means to hammer out something. Like in uh, Exodus 39.3, or, or it has the idea of uh, you know, hammering and flattening something and overlaying gold over something, like in Isaiah 40 verse 19. So uh, rakia really, it, it's, the, it's the thing that is that's spread out, that's flattened out. Or stretched, you could say. That's what a rakia is. One commentator has helpfully noted that, uh, quote, the emphasis is uh, in the Hebrew word rakia is not on the material it's in itself, but on the act of spreading out or the, or the condition of being expanded. So what that means is rakia in itself it doesn't mean that it's something that is, uh, that is hard like a metal and is stretched out because you can, e- you can stretch out metal pieces but you can even stretch out even soft things like a small piece of gauze. See, the, 
the ancient societies, the, the culture in which uh, Moses lived as he was writing this, used to think that the, the, the sky above us as a, as a solid dome that was over the earth. In fact, there was this same kind of thinking as well many years later, even when uh, Bible translation was going on. In fact, it is that very same thinking which influenced the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, where rakia was then translated into firmamentum. And then from there, many years later, it made its way into the English King James Version uh, with the word firmament. But I would say firmament is not the best word for rakia because nowhere in the Bible does, does it show this rakia to be something that is firm, something or even something that is fixed, but, but it's simply the understanding of something that is stretched out. So the, the word expanse, I would say, is a much better word for rakia. But now you say, okay, wh what is this rakia? What is this expanse? Well, we have to look at what else Genesis 1 says about it. In Genesis 1, 6, it says, God commanded the expanse to be in the midst of the waters. And it was to separate the waters from the waters. So what we understand from that is this expanse was to come in between the, the waters and it was meant to separate and make distinct waters below and waters above. And this rakia was supposed to come in between. Then in Genesis 1.8, God gives a name to the expanse. And what does he call it? Heaven. Then in Genesis 1, 14 to 17, we see that God places the sun and the moon and the stars in the expanse, or the same rakia. And then in Genesis 1, 20, we see that the birds that God created also fly across this expanse. Now in the Bible, the, the, the heaven, the heavens, it can refer to a few things. It can refer to the, the sky above us, uh, which we would call scientifically as the atmosphere, or what we would normally colloquially say as the air. And that's the place where birds fly, and uh, you know, animals, and we all reside in this... Uh, in the sky or the atmosphere as we know it. Then there is the, the outer space, which is where the sun and the moon and the stars are. And that's what we would scientifically call as the outer space. Then there's, and that in the Bible, so if, if the atmosphere in the Bible is called as the first heavens, the outer space in the Bible is called as the second heaven. And then there's a third heaven, which Apostle Paul, uh, when he has a vision, uh, he makes mention of it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. And this third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And this is beyond uh, all that. It's, it's not visible to the human eye. That's the third heaven. So wh what is mentioned as rakia here, or the expanse in Genesis 1, 6, which is then named as heaven, I would say it is both the first heaven and the second heaven, where the birds fly and where the sun, moon, and stars are. So it's, it's both the atmosphere as well as the outer space. So the picture is this in Genesis 1. There's this big massive ball of water mixed with raw materials and all of that. And God says, let there be an expanse, a rakia, in the midst of these waters. And so this is now stretched out. It's this stretched out space, you could call it, in the midst of the waters. Separating the waters, waters below this stretched out space, 
and what is above this stretched out space. You know, I guess you could, you know, most of us would identify with, you know, some kind of dough or pastry where you, you know, take a big lump of dough and then you flatten it with a wooden ruler, uh, a wooden roller, and it, it kind of stretches out. So I, I guess you could think of it like that. This is something that God has done that way with this expanse or the rakia, where he's just kind of stretched it out like that in between the waters, and the waters are now split this way. And there are lots of... So there's a vertical division of waters here, waters below and waters above, with the stretched out space in between. And there are other passages in Scripture that talk about God stretching the heavens. Now, just for the sake of time, I'll just mention a couple of them. Isaiah 40, verse 22, where it says, Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. In fact, the word here is more literally a, a thin cloth, stretching out this thin cloth. He stretched the heavens like stretching out a thin cloth. Psalm 104, verse 2, where it says, stretching out the, God stretched out the heavens like a, like a tent. So God, by the power of his word, he's created this, this expanse, which is stretched out space on day two. And when you think about it, you know, this expanse is so vast. So you can understand why God really needed to stretch it out, all the way out, out. Now let's just think about the, the parts of the expanse. Firstly, the, the first heaven or the atmosphere, the, the breathable atmosphere as we know it. See, that's only a, a small part of the rest of this big stretched out space this atmosphere of first heavens. When you think about the atmosphere, it's, it's the thing, it's the breathable atmosphere. It's the space that allows us to breathe. And it's made up of certain gases like oxygen and carbon dioxide and water vapor and, and a few other small gases as well. And God simply spoke it and it came into being. He created a breathable space for life to thrive. But this atmosphere not only provides a breathable space, you know, it maintains the temperature of the earth. It protects the earth from meteors and other space debris and radiation and so on and so forth. There's many other uses of the atmosphere. But what, what it does show is that God created a, a breathable and a protective barrier for the earth so that life could thrive. Now, some people take issue with this fact, and they say, oh, the atmosphere, it, it couldn't have just come about so uh, quickly. But again, it's the fact that God is doing this, so he can make that appear just like that. So that's the, the first part of the rakia, or the expanse. That's the first heavens, or the atmosphere. Then you have the rest of the expanse, which is the outer space, or the second heavens, the massive outer space. And that's the place where God will finally place the sun, moon, and stars to display his brilliance and his glory. See, what, what we need to remember is when people doubt, oh, I, I, you know, I can't think that this happened just like that in one day. What we need to remember is in the beginning, who was there? Just God. Only God was, and he clearly tells us in his word that he created the sky and the outer space by just stretching it out in between the waters. And if God can create things out of nothing, then he can certainly create the atmosphere and the rest of the outer space in one day as well. That's not impossible for God. 
So that's the rakia or the expanse, and its function is to separate the waters, to make it distinct. Waters below, and then waters above. Now you say, okay, waters below, I guess to some extent I can understand that's what finally becomes the oceans and the seas and the lakes and all that. What's the waters above? Now, one theory was proposed that the, the waters above was this water canopy just surrounding the earth, and that it was present all the way till Noah's time, and then this water canopy just broke down, and that's what caused the flood, and then since the flood, this water canopy is no longer there. Now, aside from the fact that there are problems with this, this proposed theory, Uh, even scientifically speaking, Scripture seems to suggest that these waters above the heavens are still present. It's still to this very same day. Turn to Psalm 148, verse 4. It says, Praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Now remember, this this psalm is written many, many, many years after the flood. And it would make no sense for the psalmist to call the heavens, uh, and including the waters that are above the heavens, to praise God if it wasn't present at the time. So the waters above the expanse, it cannot be the water canopy that existed just till the day of Noah. Then there are others who say, oh, the waters above, they refer to clouds. It's just clouds. You know, um, Proverbs 8.28 says that when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep and the uh, you know, some will point to that and say, see, that, that's, in fact, the word there for skies, it's actually not skies, it's actually clouds. When he made firm the clouds. So it's referring to a time when God uh, established or fixed the clouds in the sky. But I don't think the waters above the rakia is the clouds either. Because remember, on day 4 in Genesis 1, 14 to 17, three times it's emphasized that God has placed the sun, moon, and the stars in the expanse, in the expanse. So most people who say, oh, this is the waters above are referring to clouds, they would say, so the rakia is just the atmosphere. But God didn't place the sun, moon, and the stars in this small atmosphere that's just above the earth. It's in the outer space that he's uh, put the sun, moon, and the stars. So I don't think the waters above is clouds either. Because God emphasizes at least three times that the sun, moon, and stars are in the expanse of the heavens. And these waters mentioned, they're not in the expanse, so they're not, okay, you've got the atmosphere and the space, and uh, the Bible doesn't say the waters are in the expanse, but above the expanse. So the waters, they're not in, in the atmosphere or even in outer space. It's above the entire expanse. Now, going by the language of Scripture is saying, this is someplace even beyond the sun, moon, and the stars and all that. There is some kind of lining of water at the very edge of the universe. Now, I realize that this goes against science, because at this point, science believes that the universe is limitless, that it's got no end point. But that's the only conclusion that I can come to from just looking at the language of Scripture. And I'm, I'm happy if at some point if someone can show me from Scripture that it, it is something else. 
But for now, that's the view that I take, that it's, it's this lining that is at the very outer edge of the universe, which also means that the universe has an end, or the, the outer space has an end. Now, moving to verse 7. So in verse 6, God simply said, let there be an expanse, let it separate the waters. And then it says in verse 7, that's exactly how it came to be. You know, I would say even the way that God speaks in creation, it goes against those who would believe that the earth was not created in six days. See, because, look, when God is speaking here, he, he's not just saying, oh, let this happen sometime in the future. Or God says, no, in fact, the, the, the way the phrasing is, he, he says, let it be, like, let it be now, immediately. And it's not like God is wondering, okay, I've said this, I'm wondering now if something's going to happen. Oh, I think something's happening. Perhaps in a few million years, what I've said will come to be. No, that's not the language of the text. He simply says, let there be now, immediately, and it was so. That is exactly what happened right then and there. It doesn't go about its natural processes. There are no millions of years going on from when God speaks. God speaks and it comes to pass. There's no delay whatsoever. It is immediately accomplished. And to emphasize this point, if you look at the last part of verse 7, it says, okay, so God said, let there be, and then it repeats. Okay, so God made the expanse, separated the waters that are under the, under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. If, if that wasn't enough repetition, then there's this small little phrase, and it was so. As though God is trying to make a point. Actually, he is. That is exactly what happened right then and there. And then in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So the same formula in, as in day one. God speaks exactly as he speaks. It comes to be. And then God names what he has created. Here he calls the expanse heaven, giving it meaning and, and showing God's authority over what he has named. Remember last week we looked at the fact that it's only those who have authority over someone can name someone or something and, and give it meaning as well. So God naming the expanse as heaven is showing God's authority. His headship over the atmosphere and the outer space and everything in it. See, on day one, God showed himself to be as the God of time. As the God who made time and defined time as a 24 cycle of light and darkness, of, of day and night. And so when he names it, he's declaring he is the God of night and he is the God of light. You know, unlike the, the culture of the day that thought, oh, there, there were these two gods, God of light and God of darkness, and there's always this battle going on. God is saying, no, there is only one God. It is me. I am the God of day and night, the God who sovereignly rules over time itself and has created even time and the day and the night. So now in day two, by naming the heaven, God is saying he is the head over all the heavens. That there's no separate God of sun and separate God of moon and no God of the storm or the weather or the skies. There's simply one true living God, the creator God, who is sovereign over the heavens. And there's no other God. Everything else is a lie. Everything else is false. And this great creator God simply speaks and it comes into being. 
And it was so. And with the cycle of evening and morning, the second day comes to a close. But you know, in, in the formula of what God said in day one and as he go, goes on forward, there's one thing missing, if you noticed, that is different from day one and the rest of the other days. Do you know what it is? That phrase, God saw it was good. It's only in day two that phrase is missing, and God saw that it was good. And you say, why? Not because what he created on day two was something bad, but his work with the waters, of separating the waters, it was not yet completed. And so he waits till the work is complete, this whole separation and all that he needs to do with the waters, he waits till all that work is done to finally call it good. And here we come to the third day of creation, which is also a second point for the sermon. God's creation on day three. What you see in verses 9 and 10 now is God creating the land and the seas. Let me just read 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So God's word goes out again on the third day and he says, let the waters under the heavens. What are these waters? The same waters that were separated on day two, that's below the expanse. Let those waters below the expanse, let it be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. Now the phrase, let the waters be gathered into one place, some people take the view that, oh, this shows that originally there was one connected landmass. And the waters were just all gathered together in one place. And the land really got disconnected or divided at the time of the flood. Now that's definitely a possibility. Or the other possibility is that, you know, even when you look at verse 10, he finally calls the waters the seas, plural, not just a big sea. So it's not just a singular large sea. So I think what may be more likely happening is that while there are waters in you know, different basins, they're all interconnected. Like we have today, you know, even though we name different oceans, ultimately all these oceans are connected together. Now regardless whether there was one landmass that, that finally got separated during the flood, or it was several landmasses. What you have is God speaking, and the waters coming together, and then the raw materials rearranging itself to form dry land. Now, the psalmist describes this event very poetically in Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. Just look with me there. Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. It says, you covered it with the deep as with the garment. And the water stood above the mountains. Now what's that referring to? That's that initial stage. That watery mass of deep covering everything. And then verse 7 says, at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose and the valley sank to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So God said, let the waters be gathered to one place and let the waters be in that boundary that I have set for them and that's exactly what happened. And then God said, 
let dry land appear. And there was dry land. And think, it's not just dry, arid land, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it's dry land that is fertile and just, just wonderful soil. And then beautiful mountains just sort of coming up like that. And, and deep valleys just sinking down just all of a sudden as God has spoken. Now again, some people will say, oh, oh no, you, you know, to have valleys and, and, and mountains and fertile soil, all that would have taken time. It has to go through a natural process. But again, this is God. He's, he's not bound by natural processes. Natural processes are dependent on God. He's the one who set those things up. In fact, just turn with me to John 2, 7 through 10. Think about Jesus and his first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Now, if you remember, so there was this wedding at Cana, and Jesus was present, and they run out of wine. And so Jesus then tells them, oh, okay, take these jars, put water in there, and then fill it with water, and then finally when they tasted it, it tasted even better than the original wine that was given at the wedding. And they say, oh, you, you've saved the best wine for the last. Normally people would give the best wine at the start. Now let me ask you, you know, aside from the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, for wine to be really good, it needs to go through a process, right? It needs to age. You know, it takes time for wine to be really good, which is why the older the, a wine is, you say, oh, that's a really good wine. So here, what should normally take a long time, Jesus does in an instant. And what does it prove? That Jesus is God. That is the whole point. That he was not bound by natural processes to create even really good wine. He is God, so he can do that. And so it's the same idea here during creation week. In an instant, you have the seas gathered together, mountains suddenly coming up, deep valleys being formed. He is God and he can do it in an instant. God simply spoke it and it came into existence. And what came into existence was an, was an earth that was functionally mature with mountains and valleys and beaches and fertile soil and so on and so forth. Now verse 10, God names the dry land earth and the waters he names as the seas. Again, God is making it very clear. I am the only God. On day one, I'm the God of time. I'm the God of day and night. On day two, I'm the God of the heavens. On day three, I'm the God of the land and the seas. I'm not bound by anything in creation. I'm Lord over it all, and there is no one like me. What is on display is God's absolute authority or headship over all of his creation when he names all of his creation. And now that his work is done with the waters, the last part of verse 10, it says, and God saw that it was good. Now he's not done with day three, right after making the land and the seas. Now he's going to bring out vegetation, and that's in verses 11 through 13. Let me just read it quickly. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. 
And God saw it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now God creates plants and trees, the last thing that is required to make the earth a habitable place for his creatures. Remember, there's, there's light and darkness that you, that you need for sustenance of life. Then you need a breathable space. And now he's, cre- he's created land and seas for the land animals and the, the aquatic animals. And then finally now he creates plants and trees where plants will serve as food and even maintain the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in the air. So God speaks, and he says, let the earth sprout vegetation. And really, broadly, there's two types of vegetations he, he calls out, two broad types. You have plants and you have trees. Plants that produce seeds and trees that produce fruits with seed in them. And so God said, let this be, let this kind of vegetation be, and exactly as he said came about. In an instant, a solid oak trees, evergreen pines, apple trees, grapevines with the sweetest grapes, tomato plants, cabbage plants, stalks of grass, you name it. Everything lush green and and colorful with the trees and the plants and its fruits and vegetables and and, and flowers. You know, and what's also amazing is that all this vegetation, it didn't start with a seed. In fact, you want to solve that riddle of what came first, the seed or the tree, or the chicken or the egg? You'll find the answer here. You know, there was no seed that was planted, then over time a sapling, and then it grew into a full-grown tree. No, God simply spoke. And from that fertile land that God had made, big trees and, and plants popped up, already in its mature state, bearing fruit and bearing seed. What a sight that would have been, as he just spoke, and all this is happening. That's the power of God's word. And God didn't just make all this vegetation. He also gives it a capacity to reproduce itself with the, with the seed that was in them. You know, God is setting up another cycle or an, another order. So that all the vegetation that God has made will keep reproducing itself with its seed. There's going to be this ongoing cycle where now this vegetation can just keep going on. God sets it in motion. There's one phrase here that's repeated a few times in verses 11 and 12. And you may have noticed it as you've read through 11 and 12. It's the phrase, according to its kind. It's repeated again and again, and then even later when it talks about the living creatures made in day five and day six, a total of 10 times this phrase in Genesis 1, according to its kind, it's repeated. And God is clearly emphasizing a point here. Whenever he repeats, God is emphasizing. What is he emphasizing? That the plants and eventually even the animals that he has created will reproduce only according to its kind. What does kind mean? Well, first of all, we need to be careful not to associate kind with the term, the scientific term, species. Because, for example, if you have a horse, which is one species, and then you have a donkey, which is another species, and you breed them together, you get another species, which is a mule. And so, 
You know, those who support evolution will then say, oh, you said that species? Oh, see, there's evolution taking place right here. There's new species being formed. See, it's debunked. You know, it didn't happen like this. It happened over time, and, you know, just evolution happened. Now, what you need to understand is that while a donkey and a horse and a mule are different species, they all belong to the same biological family called equidae. So kind could at least mean sometimes belonging to the same biological family. But, but I don't think it's still a precise, there's still a precise scientific term that you can put on this word kind. Then you say, oh, well, then what can you tell me about this word kind? Well, one of the professors at Ansys in Genesis um, put it well uh, in an article, and he says this, a kind represents the re basic reproductive boundary of an organism. Let me say that again. A kind represents the basic reproductive boundary of an organism. That is, the offspring of an organism is always the same kind as its parents, even though it may display variations. So there can be variations within the same kind, but one kind will not produce another kind. It will only produce the same kind. So for example, you can have a rose plant producing another rose plant. Now, it may be slightly different in color, may smell a little bit different, it may be tall or short or, or, or whatever else, have more flowers or less foliage or, or whatever. There'll be some variation that's possible. But a rose plant will not suddenly then evolve into some oak tree. That's never going to happen. Or a banana tree will not produce grapes. Or a plant will not suddenly become an animal at some point. And what this does is it, it, it debunks the very idea of evolution. You know, those who still want to talk about evolution, show them this phrase, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. Because God, what God has done at the genetic level of plants and animals is that he's put a barrier of what something can and cannot reproduce. So the seeds of plants and trees are programmed to produce only according to its kind. The offspring or the babies of animals are genetically coded to produce only its same kind. There might be some variation, but God has set a limit to how much of a variation that there can be with what something can reproduce, whether it's a plant or an animal. God has set boundaries or limits to it. God has ordered or programmed into the very DNA of plants and animals that it can produce only according to its kind. I mean, isn't it amazing? I mean, this is God writing his word so many thousands of years ago. And people are still trying to debate, oh, you know, no, 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 God, God has said it right here. No, I put boundaries as to what, in how much of variation a certain thing can have. It won't go beyond that. It will always be according to its kind. It's amazing how God has so ordered his world. He created light and darkness, set boundaries to it. He created the expanse, set boundaries to it. He created the land and the seas, set boundaries to it. Now he creates plants and later even animals, and he will set boundaries on what it can and cannot produce. Why does God do that? As one commentator put it, to ensure the continuity and the stability of what he has made. I love that. 
I mean, God sets up all these boundaries, even at the genetic level, so that it would ultimately ensure the continuity of what he has made and ultimately display his glory and everything would give him the glory that is due to his name. Whatever God does is for the good of his creation and ultimately for his glory. What a great God we have. As Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. And with that, we come to the end of day three. So God takes an earth that is formless and uninhabitable and gave it form. He gave it the cycle of day and night. He gave it a breathable atmosphere and the outer space. He gave it land and sea. And finally, he gave it plants and trees with fruits and vegetables to provide as food. And when you look at this earth now, it's an earth that is so beautiful and so well-formed. And there's an intricate design already that we can see in all that he's already established. And there's an order that is in place so that now this creation of his would be stable and continue as he has intended. And now the earth is ready to be inhabited and to be filled. And so now God sees what he has made, perceives it to be good, because it reflects his own goodness. What a beautiful earth it would have been on that third day as he's made all this. And then verse 13 says, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Another 24 hours. God made all this in three days. Now there's perhaps some of you here that's going through some difficulties. You know, when you look at the context in which Moses wrote the book of Genesis. The people of Israel are, you know, have wandered through the wilderness. They're getting ready to enter the promised land. And they don't know what to expect, whether God will order their steps and things will happen as it may be. And what an encouragement this, even this creation account would have been, that this is the very same God that is with them. And so in, perhaps there's some here who are going through some difficulties. And maybe you don't know, like the Israelites, how things are going to pan out in the future and you're concerned about that. Or maybe something has already happened in your life and, and you don't know how it could possibly work out for your good. No, that can't possibly work out for my good. I can't see how God can do it for my good. Well, what I want to tell you this morning is this. The same God who ordered the entire universe and set it into motion for it to function the way it should be, all according to his plan, is the same God who has ordered your steps, who has ordered every single thing in your life. And all the variations, all the bumps on the road as you, as you walk this journey of the Christian life, or maybe even the ditches and the difficulties that you may face. He has ordered it all, and you can be certain that ultimately it is for your good and ultimately for his glory. That's the great God that we worship and serve. The same creator God who ordered the world still continues to order your very life. Let's close in prayer.